Good morning. And uh, just like Pastor Paul, I too want to welcome you to Four Oaks. And I was just thinking about this uh, this morning. I don't know if you guys sense this, but there's, there's just such a sweet spirit uh, as God is moving among his people in worship to him, right? And just reminds me back of Pastor Paul's sermon last Sunday where he talks about the family of God and the priority that the family of God should have in our lives. That we come here with a sense of expectation uh, and anticipation of how God will meet us here. And, uh, and that's what it means to be God's family, right? And so I was, um, I was just talking about being God's family, and there's lots of different ways that we function as God's family. And one of the sweetest and yet the hardest things about being God's family is when we send some of our best away. And so I want to highlight for you one more announcement before we jump into God's Word this morning. Um, we have an, an event called Evening in Papua New Guinea. Uh, if you've been around Four Oaks for a while, you know that we have these evening events. Every time we have a gospel partner who comes in country and wants to share about what God is doing or literally around the world. And so we've actually got an evening in Morocco in June, evening in India in July. But I want to highlight for you in May, an evening in Papua New Guinea. And this is really significant because this is the first time where you'll be able to hear about the call of God that he has placed upon Jamie and Tara Watson. If you guys know anything about Jamie and Terry, you know that they are some of our best. And sometimes God calls us to send our best to the nations. And so uh, Jamie and Terry, they served as community group leaders. Um, Jamie serves with the sound team along with his son. Um, Tara's, I think, probably right now hanging out with the kids in the nursery. And so uh, we are really delighted at the same time saddened by the fact that uh, we're going to be sending them off. And one of the things about sending our best off is that we want to send them off well. Uh, not only with our prayers, but also our financial support. And so they've got a quick, uh, a quick takeoff as, as they desire um, to be able to head out by the end of the summer. And they're just now beginning to raise prayer and financial support. And so my desire as a pastor would be that our church family would come to this event on Friday night at 7 o'clock to not only hear the good things that God is preparing for them to do and how he's already working in Papua New Guinea, but also that we would come ready to support them. We'd become ready to say, I'm, I'm committed to praying for you. Yes, I'm, I'm committed to giving a one-time gift to you. Yes, I'm committed to supporting you financially monthly so that whenever they go, they are, they are well supported by us as a church family. And so uh, prioritize that. It's a, it's a Friday night. Um, there'll be dessert and coffee. Uh, there's lots of child care for nursery and preschool elementary kids on up and just can come and hear the stories. And uh, it'll be a really sweet time together as we as we pray for and send out Jamie and Tara well. All right, so let me go ahead and jump in. We're going to jump into God's Word this morning. And I want to start out with a story. Uh, in his book, Dangerous Calling, Paul Tripp tells a story about a couple named John and Judy. John and Judy grew up in a local church uh, where protecting and preventing love was all around them, love that was candid and encouraging and confronting and forgiving and hopeful. And over time, through input from godly men and godly women who knew them and loved them well, they sensed a call to plant a church. And they entered into this ministry with a mutual sense of excitement and calling, but they had no idea what awaited them. Almost immediately, things began to change inside of John, changes that neither he saw nor was at the time really concerned about. But over time, the burdens of ministry and the pressure to do everything for everyone left him weak overwhelmed, unable, and afraid. And he shared these struggles with, you guessed it, no one. 
not even his wife, Judy. Sure, he would say theological things about his need for grace, but never in a way that would lead others to seriously consider that their pastor was a spiritually needy man. But as John grew more distant and isolated, it also left John to his own blindness, that that he was blind to his sin and his need for grace. Increasingly, John allowed himself to be okay with things that aren't okay. A hurtful poke at another person, gossip about a fellow leader, walking away angry from a conversation, and growing impatient, irritated, and isolated at home. In the past, John was quick to confess his sin, but now he didn't even see his sin. And when his wife, Judy, would try to point it out, he would get defensive and get angry make excuses. And eventually, the separation between John's personal, or excuse me, his public ministry persona and his personal life became too much for Judy to bear. When Judy Judy looked at John, it was as if she saw Jesus leaving the building. And so finally, she gave that fateful ultimatum, John, it's either me or the ministry. Folks, I wish I could say that this story is rare, But if you have paid attention to anything on the internet, you know that that's not the case. The pressures are real. The spiritual warfare over our souls, and particularly the souls over church leaders, it is intense. And as a result, we read of church leaders leaving the ministry often, and many times Christ himself. And it's a sad, sorrowful, gut-wrenching reality, and yet it's true. And, And for some of you who have been here a while, you know that this hits very close to home. And whether it's church leaders or, or friends who grew up in the church or, or a particular family member, all too often we witness this subtle slide away from Christ. And if you're anything like me, you're like, well, what do I do? How do I respond? How do I think about these things? Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Why don't you stand with me? We're going to read the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 4, these five short but very important verses And so let's listen to God's word together. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. In response to God's word, let's, let's pray. God, we grieve when people move away from you. We lament the loss, the pain, the trouble. But if we're honest, it's not just our, our concern for those who have moved away from Christ, but it's also concern about, will I be one of those as well? God, I ask that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us a heart that really seeks to understand and apply your word this morning. Please meet us by your grace, with your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys take your seats. You know, I thought about calling today's sermon Demons, Deception, and Deliverance, but I thought that might be a little bit too intense if you're into horror films. Uh, so I've simply entitled today's sermon Walking Away. 
And we've got three points this morning. The warning of apostasy, the weight of legalism, and the wonder of grace. So the warning of apostasy, weight of legalism, W-E-I-G-H-T, and the wonder of grace. All right, so first, the warning of apostasy. Let's read again, verses 1 and 2. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. That word depart is where we get the word apostasy. It's made up of two Greek words. It's a compound Apa, meaning no longer, and istemi, meaning to be firm, stand, or immovable. In other words, um, a person who has been committed, at least it appears so, committed to Christ, has faith in him, committed to the faith, the body of teaching of the gospel, but then all of a sudden, it appears, they move away. They've departed. They are no longer committed to him. And the Spirit expressly says this happens in later times. Uh, what is later times? It just basically refers to the time that's inaugurated by Jesus' first coming, and it's consummated by his second coming. That time in between, there is, there is a time where men and women are tempted to turn away from the living God towards false teaching. They formerly were, were turning towards God, and now they have turned away from him. And this is a sad, sobering reality, but it shouldn't surprise us. Why? Because the Spirit of God expressly says that it's going to happen. Now, where does he say it? <laughs> well, lots of places. And I don't know exactly where Paul has in mind here, but let me just reference to you a few of them. So the Spirit of Christ speaks through Christ himself in the Gospels. Uh, you can look up uh, Matthew 24, I think. I'm going to go ahead and read it from here. So Matthew 24, Jesus says this, verses, verse 10 through 12. He says, And, when, and then that many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Fast forward over to Mark, Mark chapter 13. 22 and 23, this is what Jesus says again. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Flip over to Luke, Luke 8, 13. And this is the parable of the sower and the seed. This is where Jesus is talking about the seed falling on the rock. What does he say in verse 13? And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. So Jesus makes it abundantly clear that this will happen. Or maybe the Apostle Paul, when he's talking about the, the Spirit of God expressly saying these things, he's thinking about how the Spirit of God expressly said it through him. Flip over to Acts chapter 20. Jesus, or excuse me, Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders. This is where, he's, where Timothy now is, in Ephesus. And he gives this warning, probably the last time that he's speaking to this group of men that he loves and cares for. Verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, 
be alert. One other kind of side note here is notice in here um, where it says the Spirit of... It doesn't say the Spirit of God said these things. It says the Spirit of God expressly says these things. So here's the idea. The Word of God through the Spirit of God was spoken, but the Word of God through the Spirit of God still speaks. In other words, when we open up God's Word every morning, this is not just something that was written in the past that's for benefit of people in the past. This is written for us. This is the living Word that pierces the heart. And we are to pay attention to what God says through His Spirit every morning we come together. He still speaks. How does this happen? How do people fall away? How do they depart from the faith? Well, it seems to be that there's both an outward temptation and an inward one. There's kind of this spiritual battle that's going on outside of us, but there's also a spiritual battle that's going on within the souls of these people who are departing from the faith. And so first, let's talk about the enemy without. All right, so we have this enemy. He is a roaring lion. He is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy anyone who would claim to follow Jesus Christ. And in particular, as we find here in verse 1, it says that he uses deceitful spirits to move people away from the truth. So think back to Genesis 3, right? The, the, the serpent goes to Eve, and what does he say? Did God really say? He turns that period into a question mark, inserting some sort of doubt into people's minds. And that is the scheme of the enemy. He wants to insert doubt into our minds about the goodness of God, about the truth of his word, about the wisdom of his plans. And I would say in particular, he does this when we go through hard times. So Satan and his seducing spirits love to come to those who have a troubled mind. You ever been in that place where you feel troubled when, when some heavy cloud of sorrow just overwhelms you? Or when disappointment in other Christians has overtaken you? Or perhaps when you're sick and you're weak in the body and you just want to give up trying? Satan comes in. Hey, did God really say that he loves you? Is God really good? Does he really keep his word? Deception leads to doubt. It then leads to distance from God. And ultimately, it leads to destruction of our soul and damnation in hell. It's sobering, but it shouldn't be a surprising reality that that is the case. Uh, we, we launched a ministry called Restore. And uh, we were walking through the story of God found in his word, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. So God created us for love, Right? Both to receive love and to give love. Uh, redemption is Jesus redeems us with his love to help us to experience that love. Um, and consummation is that we enjoy God's love forever, perfectly and completely. As you, as you know, it's probably I skipped the second part of that story, the fall. That fall is the evil that keeps us from love. There's a curse of the fall that would seek to tell us that God's love really isn't true. And it begins with the evil without. And so if you feel under attack this morning by that enemy, the Spirit of God says, watch out. Pay attention. Watch out for the enemy. Watch out for his evil schemes of distraction and discouragement and division and deception. Watch out. 
Not only watch out for the enemy without, but we also need to watch out for the enemy within. So there is a spiritual battle that's not just raging out there. If you are honest, there is a spiritual battle that's also raging within. Who will stay on the throne of my heart? See, our greatest enemy is not the enemy without, and not the evil without, but the evil within our very own soul. We are born with a bent away from God. We are born with a bent towards self-glory and self-love rather than God's glory and God's love. What does Jeremiah 17 says? It says, apart from Christ, our hearts are deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? That is our situation apart from Christ. And for these false teachers, they most likely did some battle out there. But what they didn't realize is there was a real battle going right in their soul. They begin to add what Christ has done with rules and regulations to move them towards Christ, but instead it moved them farther away. They had replaced an invitation to enjoy a relationship with God with a religion of denial and duty. And over time, it says that they became insincere liars whose consciences are sealed, are seared, I mean. Uh, I don't know what an insin- I don't know what a sincere liar is. Like, hey, I'm lying to you, and I just want to be sincere about it. But it's like the double negative here. Like, it all can be translated a hypocritical liar. It's like let me just let me not introduce you a liar, but an, a one who's hypocritical about this. They even know that they're spreading lies, and yet they pretend that it's the truth. That's what seems to be going on here. And maybe there was a time where it grieved the hearts of these men to preach a lie. Uh, Maybe their consciences were pricked for a while, but over time, their consciences became seared like a piece of red hot, like a a piece of meat on a red hot iron. And and they no longer felt any sort of conviction or guilt about what they were saying. Our conscience is to be a rudder that leads us to Christ, but their rudder led them away from Christ as they continued to ignore their conscience. And eventually their rudder no longer worked. See, when we see someone who's departing from the faith, it's never an academic issue. It is a hard heart issue. We suppress the truth, and over time, we just become so numb to it that we don't even realize we're moving away from God. But when you keep ignoring your conscience, it will break. And that's what's going on with these teachers And I want to ask you this. This is not about the teachers out there. Remember, the battle is going on right in here. So are you this morning tempted to move away from Christ? I I can't, I can't. I know that in a crowd this size, there are some who are tempted to move away. Have you been ignoring the conviction of the Holy Spirit? The writer of Hebrews says that we have to be careful or we will fall away by the deceitfulness of sin. We must Watch out. By the way, this um, word seer uh, can not only mean devoid of feeling and conviction, but it also can mean branding. Like when animals are branded or seared by their owners. In other words, these men over time became branded or stamped or seared by Satan himself to be used for his diabolical purposes. This is what 1 John 2.19 says. It says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would not have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are 
all not of us. In other words, they professed, but they did not possess Christ. And this is really important. I want to make this abundantly clear. They may have known about God, but they didn't really truly know him. They may have professed to love God, but over time their, their lives revealed that all they did was really love themselves. They were indeed parading around in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they were ravenous wolves. They had never been born again. And so when we see people over and over again moving away from Christ, it very may, well may be that they didn't know Christ at all. But I also I want, to, I want to give you hope here. At the same time, only God knows a person's heart. Okay? And so don't ever think, well, they don't know Christ. They moved away from Christ. They can never come back. No. Don't give up praying for your friends or your family members who have departed from the faith. God never lets any of his sheep go astray too far. Okay? But the Spirit expressly says to us, we have got to watch out for enemies, both within and without. All right, so not only watch out for apostasy, but also watch out for a body of teaching called legalism. Verse 3, the weight of legalism. These false teachers, they, verse 3, forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So these false teachers, they had this sort of teaching, this brand of legalism that we call asceticism. It's, it's basically the intentional denial of things that God has created as good, in this case, it's mentioned food and marriage, in order to gain right standing with God. And we hear this teaching all over the place and in many different ways. So for example, the Mormons, uh, they say you have to give up, just as an example, they have to, say you have to give up all caffeine and all alcohol before you can become a baptized member of their church. Catholics, what do they say? They say that priests cannot be married if they want to serve in the church. That's their greatest means of moving towards God. Buddhists, they say that one must deny oneself completely in order to obtain nirvana. In essence, asceticism basically says, I will say no to this thing so that God will say yes to me. And asceticism is really just a form of legalism that basically says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. Or I do these things in order for God to respond to me. So this can even, this can even you know, move into things like, hey, name it, claim it. Uh, have enough faith and then God will move. It is creeped into the church then. It still creeps into the church now. Apostle Paul, elsewhere in his letter to the Colossians, he says this in Colossians chapter 2. He says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, in a world of indulgence like we experience and we see all around us, asceticism may sound like a wise way to live. In fact, next we're going to talk about um, training ourselves for godliness. Um, Self-discipline, it's good. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. That's really, really good. But self-denial in order to gain right standing with God, it is not good news. It's bad news. It's from as it says, the teachings of demons. We can never be accepted by God by our good works or by our self-denial of good things. 
I do want to make a little distinction here uh, about the difference between self-denial and denying self. Let's just read a quote here from Ray Stedman. He says, There is a difference between self-denial and denying self. Jesus said, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That is denying self. Putting ourselves in the throne, right? But that is easily confused with self-denial, which says, I will give up this thing or that thing. I will not do this or stay out of that because I want to reveal my dedication. I want to be admired for my zeal. I want to gain a special mark of favor before God. I want to influence God to do something for me in return. That motivation renders it no longer denying self, but self-denial. So abstaining, um, uh, being a legalist, it will keep you, you think it'll keep you from sin, but it actually keeps you from Christ. And what may have an appearance of wisdom actually moves us farther away from the God who is all wise and all good and all loving. And oftentimes, I know this to be the case because I'm a recovering legalist. <laughs> um, while portraying a clean and clear outer image, the legalist all the while indulges the desires of the flesh. And eventually that outer clean image is shattered and we'll be exposed for who we truly are. And we think that somehow it's going to lead to good, but it actually increases our sin of pride and self-reliance and self-righteousness and ultimately it leads to greater bondage, the weight of legalism. John Bunyan, he, when he grew up in a... Uh, Grew up in a home um, that, that promoted Christ, uh, but he gave in to this idea of legalism. And in his book, Pilgrim's Progress, which is really an allegory of his life, and, and really all of us as, as Christians, talks about this young man, Christian, who has this weight of sin upon his back, and he's trying to get rid of it. He's heard the, the message of the evangelist about the good news of Jesus Christ, but he's yet to believe and he runs into this man named Worldly Wise Man, if you're familiar with the story. And he says this, he says, I know what I desire to obtain. What I desire is ease, to be eased of my heavy burden. And Worldly Wise Man begin his advice. Why in that village called Morality, there dwells a gentleman whose name is Legality. He's a very judicious man with a good name, an individual who has skill to help people remove their shoulders burdens like yours. So... Christian left his path to go to Mr. Legality's house for help, but as Christian neared the hill, he was struck by how high and foreboding the hill appeared. One side of the hill hung precariously over the path that wound its way around it, and Christian feared that the overhanging hill would fall on him. Filled with fear, Christian stopped his journey and stood still, wondering what he should do. His burden now seemed heavier to him than it was just moments before he had taken the detour off the path that evangelists had instructed him to go. Christian began to sweat and quake with fear. He was sorry that he had taken Mr. Worldly Wiseman's counsel. Have you found yourself in the village of morality? given to fear and just that feeling of the, the weight of the law that you can never measure up to, realizing that all the rules that you followed still haven't led you closer to the Lord. You know, all these rules, they have an appearance of wisdom, as the Apostle Paul says, but they have no real value. And not only does asceticism and legalism uh, move us away, uh, as we move us away from Christ and, and we move towards self Reliance and self-righteousness and sometimes even self-loathing when we don't measure up. But it also lays to the axe to the, to the vine, 
of the sweetness of Christ. So if you find yourself, or even if you're thinking that maybe you find yourself in this place of legalism, uh, I have just a few questions I want to ask you as you're kind of discerning your heart, okay? Um, I thought about this as like Jeff Foxworthy, you might be a redneck if. All right, so, so I wrote these down because you might be a legalist if, all right? As a recovering legalist, this is my list of questions for you to consider. Do you feel like on the days you obey that God is prouder of you and loves you more than on the days when you disobey? Or do you truly believe that he loves you no matter what? And I'm just saying kind of know it up here, but really know it in your soul, okay? Another question, do you find yourself comparing what you've done to others? Are you moved to pride when you do well or to self-pity when you do poorly? And if you're a recovering legalist like me, usually I compare myself to the ones that I'm doing better than. Are you driven to work and never to rest? Or are you able to work hard but rest really well, even when you've got that to-do list still to do? Do you find yourself isolated and lonely and feel that no one understands or cares about you no matter how hard you work? Or are you able to enjoy friendships with others no matter whether you've done something good or they've done something good? When you experience trouble in life, do you immediately see it as punishment for something that you did? Or do you see trouble as wisdom from the Father who desires to move close to you and you to him. So more, when you sin, do you hide it? Or are you quick to confess it to God and to others? And if you're one of those people who are like, listen to this list, and you're like, oh, I know that person over there. They do that a lot, right? <laughs> you might be a legalist if, right? What does Psalm 139 say? Search me, O God. Try me. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me to the way everlasting. Folks, we need to watch out for legalism. So now watch out for apostasy and the enemies both without and within. Watch out for this weight of legalism that can really bind us and overwhelm us and overpower us. But also, last but not least, we are to watch out for the wonder of grace. When I say watch out, obviously it doesn't mean move away from it, but I mean pay attention to it. Don't move away from it, but but move towards it. The wonder of grace. Let's read verses 4 and 5. Let's start with verse 3. So God's talking about, or Apostle Paul's talking about these foods and marriage, that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So what's the antidote to legalism? It is grace. I want you to hear this. Holiness doesn't come through abstaining from things. It comes through the righteousness of Christ and putting all of our faith in him. Jesus lived. Jesus died. Jesus rose. And Jesus gives all of that to you and to me by his grace. And everything that he gives to us is of grace. That path to heaven is not about what you do. It's about Christ has done for you. So we are not accepted by abstention, by abstaining. We are accepted by redemption. The price that Jesus paid for us so that all of our sins can be wiped away. 
Not only that, but the great exchange is that he, we take up, he takes upon himself the sin that we so rightfully deserve and the punishment that we deserve, and he gives to us his perfect righteousness. Jesus, as we've heard before, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That is who God is. He is a gracious, good God. And he set a table of grace for us to enjoy. Listen to uh, the words of Isaiah 55. This is one of my favorite gospel passages. Come, everyone who thirsts. Are you thirsty? Come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love. And you can put your name in there for Scott. Right? The same love that God has for David, he has for us. And it's everlasting. It is good news. And the Apostle Paul says that God is a good God and that he made all good things for us to enjoy. So this harkens back to Genesis 1 and 2 where God looked out on everything he'd made and he said, this is good, really good. Food is good. Marriage is good. In fact, everything that God has made is, is good. He is a God of grace and he loves to give good gifts to his kids. Unearned. You don't have to pay for it. You just... Receive it. And we're not just to enjoy it a little bit. We're to enjoy it to the full. Maybe God, let let me enjoy this for a little bit. No. God wants you just to drink, eat all of his grace. Verse 5 says this. It's a little bit confusing, so I want to uh, highlight it for you. It says, for it is made holy, meaning these things are made holy by the word of God and prayer. So we get praying before a meal. But if you're like me, sometimes you pray like, Lord, I know I'm in this really, really fat-inducing piece of meat. Would you keep me from not gaining weight? Okay, that's not really what it has to do with. Uh, no, it is this idea, when it's talked about being made holy, it means setting food or setting all good gifts in its true perspective. So food is a good gift from God. Uh, and when we receive that good gift, we look back to God and we thank him for it. We praise him for it. The same is true of marriage and of sex. When a husband and wife enjoy good sex, good love, Right? We can enjoy it to the full. We can say, thank you, God. Amen, right? Not just the meal, not just relationship with your husband or wife, but but really everything can be made holy. It can be made sacred when we receive his good gifts and we bring it back to him and say, thank you, God. This is what G.K. Chesterton said about this. He said, you say grace before meals? All right, but I say grace before the play and the opera. And grace before I open a book, and grace before sketching, and painting, and swimming, and fencing, and boxing, and walking, and playing, and dancing. This guy, he had some fun. And grace before I dip the pen in the ink. In other words, the wonder of grace is that all of our lives is to be a celebration of gratitude and thanksgiving. By the way, 
That word for thanksgiving, it comes from the Greek word eucharisto, where we get the word eucharist from. But we're about to take the Lord's Lord's table in a second and give thanks to God. By the way, eucharisto, what's in the middle of that word? Charis, meaning grace. So the way that thanksgiving works is we see everything that God gives to us as grace. And then we say, thank you, God. And we hold up our arms and we say, can I have some more? That's who God is. Not just the meal, but everything. By the way, this doesn't mean that we receive these good gifts and then we hoard them. We keep them to ourselves. That's licentiousness. No. We say, thank you, God, for your good gifts. And now let me share your good gifts with others. And let me give you praise. That's liberty. That's what God offers to us. Now you guys are like, Scott, it's too good to be true. I mean, could God really be this good? Absolutely. Now we do go through troubled times in this life. I, I do not want to dismiss that at all. And we can be tempted to assume then that God's not good to us. Well, it's a hurt relationship, or it's a, you know, a body breaking down, or it's a lost job, or whatever. But all of those are a means then of drawing us closer back to God and say, God, give me more of your grace. Please heal my body. And when you do, let me praise you for it. Please restore this relationship. And when you do, let me praise you for it. Please give me this job. When I get that first paycheck, let me write out like my Aunt Freddie used to do. She would say, God is good. That's what we are to do. If you're like me with a legalistic mindset, this call to receive everything with thanksgiving, it can be hard. We might, we might still feel like we, we have to earn it or we have to deny it until we've earned it. It doesn't come naturally to us, this understanding of grace. We are born legalists. We are born just feeling like we have to earn everything. In many ways, it's a discipline to have gratitude, to recognize God's grace and I mean, I'm not sure about you, but my heart is oftentimes just tempted towards grumbling and complaining rather than gratitude. If you want to find, if you see somebody who's ungrateful, most likely they're a legalist. I speak as one. I was looking back on my journal uh, a, few, a couple years ago. I wrote down uh, my, my pattern a couple years ago started, uh, introduced this, this process by a guy named Robert Chong. And so I started writing down my heart and then God's heart, and then God's invitation. Just three simple things, and I would write out, you know, the state of my heart, like what's going on? How am I doing? And then what's God's heart revealed, to, revealed through God's word? How does God speak to my heart? And then last but not least, how, how is God inviting me to respond to him? And it's really interesting. I was meditating on this passage uh, this week, and then I realized my journal has changed. Um, for a while there, all of my, the state of my heart was just grumbling, complaining, anxiety, fear, trouble, doubt, all of that. And those things are still true, certainly. But uh, I remember my wife, Julia, she was talking about gratitude. And I started just trying, just trying to watch out for grace. And uh, I started writing down some things and just trying to, you know, discipline myself to be grateful. And it was really sweet. Uh, just this week, as I was looking at my journal entry, it was filled with gratitude. So I'm encouraging you, watch out for grace. 
See God's grace in your life, both the small things and the big things, and trust that he will give you more grace. I was reading uh, Psalm 30 this morning. This just really struck me. Uh, If I can find it. Yeah, verse 5. For his anger is but for a moment, but his favor or his grace is for a lifetime. That's us. Jesus dealt with all the anger of God against our sins so that all of our lives could be grace. Let me share with you one last story. Uh, There's a guy named Jack Miller. He wrote a, a curriculum called Sonship, which I've gone through. And it just has to do with the idea of like, are you living as an orphan or are you living as a child of God? And um, in this book, he shares the story about this woman. I just want to read it to you. Maybe an encouragement to you if you are struggling and wrestling with like, could God really be this good? Does he really love me in this way? Is he full of grace towards me? This is her story. One day when I was very young, I saw my older sister hang up my father's white business shirts on the clothesline to dry. I was suddenly filled with urge to hang up one of his white shirts too. After all, he was my daddy and I was his daughter. I couldn't reach the clothesline. It was too high. But I I saw a wheelbarrow in the yard and its handles were just the right height for me. I didn't notice how rusty it was. And I rather joyfully clothespinned the wet white shirt to the handles. When my dad got home and saw the shirt on the wheelbarrow, he became very angry with me and punished me severely for ruining his white shirt. That experience had a profound effect on me. For years, I had not believed that my father in heaven was any different from my earthly father. My Christian life had been a continual effort to earn God's pleasure by getting the shirts hung up right. God would answer if my prayer was right. God would smile upon me if my theology was correct. And since I knew how I failed day by day in my works, I sort of snuck them up too on the line and tried to be away when God got home, so to speak, in case he was angry with how I performed. I didn't know how to live day by day without an overwhelming sense of failure to perform up to what I thought God demanded. With that came a sense of God being disappointed and even disgusted with me. In short, I hadn't believed the gospel that by faith in Christ and his perfect atoning sacrifice, he now loves me. He is forever for me. He is delighted in me. In Christ, he has made me a beautiful and and pleasing to him forever. So, I shared this realization of God's grace and love for me with a counselor. I told him my childhood memory and said that I guess if the father saw me standing next to the wheelbarrow with the woman shirt on it, he would forget the shirt and hug me. But my counselor said, you still don't understand God's goodness and grace fully. God would not overlook the shirt, but he would take it, put it on, and wear it to work. And when someone commented on the rust marks, he would say, let me tell you about my little girl and how much she loves me. I was overwhelmed. How overpowering it is now to realize that because of Christ, I am loved deeply and that I can experience a daily freedom to love God and love others without fear. I can obey God with my heart because I don't fear that he will be furious with me if I get that little shirt a little rusty. This is a freedom to love that I have not known since the moments before my father got home that day, long ago. Four Oaks, you do not have an angry father if you are in Christ. 
Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You have a father who delights in you, who rejoices over you with singing. You have a son who gave his life for you and even right now is interceding on your behalf. He loves you so much. And you have a spirit who wants to make this real in your heart. Grace and love offered freely for you. That is the antidote to legalism, and that is the way that leads to life. Or as Jack Miller says, cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine. And you're more loved than you ever dared hope or dream. It's good news for us. Let's pray.